welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. All right, welcome back, everybody, to episode 34 of The Near Memo. I'm Greg, and I'm here, as always, with Mike and David, and we're going to talk about search, social, and commerce, and all the interesting things that happened, or many of the interesting things that happened in the past week that we also cover in our newsletter and on the blog. Um, and we're waiting to talk about Apple Maps in more detail until Mike can do a d- deeper dive on it. But that would ordinarily be a topic, uh, interesting topic today. But we're not going to talk about that. And Mike, you get to go first, and you're going to talk about Bloomingdale's. I am going to, uh, yeah. So, I, interesting article in Retail Dive about the new Bloomies format. So, as you know, or what is Bloomies? Know, you know, what most, is Bloomies? So, Bloomies is the concept from Bloomingdale's of a smaller footprint store. It is in the face of malls having difficulty and most department stores, in fact, maybe more than half closing in malls in 2021, many of the better retailers have gone to outside shopping districts or downtown districts. And as part of that, Bloomingdale's developed a smaller footprint, stylish selection of products in a tech savvy space, 22,000 square feet, where instead of wading through rack after rack, they have these this heavily curated and frequently changing product mix that you know rotates trends and they host activations and they feature these pop-up merchandise carts. And so theoretically it prompts product discovery. They also offer Cuban food and coffee to keep you going while you're what? why the Cuban um, food? I have no idea. It's called the Colada Shop. But uh, I have no idea why they chose that, but so it's just, it's interesting that they're, they're doing this heavily curated thing and they're, they're, they're uh, what they call stylists. These are people that can help you pick from the stylish things that are on display, shoes and shirts. Everybody's cross-trained in every department and they have a QR code system. So if you need to uh, call an associate over, you scan the QR code and somebody comes over and then this, stylists, as they call them, can help you either mix and match with the stuff that's there. They can help you order online, or they can even order from other third parties. They're not limited Mm. to just Bloomingdale stock. So I just thought it was an interesting response to the failure of the malls, the decline of department stores, the need for going outdoors, you know, to these outdoor shopping areas. And so I, I thought it was fascinating that this is a response to the changing retail environment that's more experience driven. How, 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 I, was how try, many... I was trying to say that the Cuban food and coffee might be the only thing to bring me in uh, to that <laughs> concept. Well, but, it's, but then once you go I mean, in, you get to see all it's, these. It's products. primarily, I mean, I'm at the risk of sounding sexist. I mean, I think it's their target audience is, is predominantly women, I would imagine, right? Uh, it sounds to me like it's style conscious people, but. Uh, you could well, be right. I mean, certainly. Yeah, so me. younger, sho- probably, <laughs> probably younger shoppers, probably younger shoppers right. who are going to be more gender balanced, um, and and maybe w- if in among older shoppers, predominantly women. I mean, do you do either do you do either of you shop at Bloomingdale's? I walk through Bloomingdale's. I mean, David buys golf shirts. I buy you know t-shirts. Yeah. That's the end of the typically story. from courses I've actually played though. So I don't know that I would buy a oh, okay. buy a shirt from Bloomingdale's. Um, no, I right. think it's it is an interesting concept. I think it it ties in as well with the the sort of showrooming type uh, idea for Warby Parker and Bonobos and those sorts of companies. Um, 
and certainly as a way for Bloomingdale's to save on, you know, rent <laughs> in in uh, higher rent and larger footprint stores. So, well, one of the interesting changes is this front desk, right? Is uh, where it's set up to answer questions, perform tasks like online pickups, returns, gift wrapping, alterations, and styling, as well as a Dropbox for online returns. It's interesting that the function of the back room stuff is being pushed out to the mm. front and the cashier is being hidden mm. at some mm. level. Well, I mean, yeah, I think, it, go ahead, David. Does it, does it have the Amazon just walk out with the item, uh, you know, RFID no. chip or anything? No, no. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that that, I, I think that that's a context and a much higher touch context. And, you know, I mean, I think just walk out works when you know exactly what you want. You go, you pick it up off the shelf. But this, this is, it seems like this is designed to be a, an environment where these sales, these stylists interact, you know, I mean, in, as you say, in a curated way with, um, with, with, with shoppers. I think, you know, kudos to them for, for trying something really different um, because, you know, you can't just do the same old thing and expect success. It seems like there's like two categories now of retailers. Well, beyond the ones that are not going to do anything and screw up and fail, but in terms of the ones that are trying to innovate, you've got folks like Walmart and Target and maybe some others that are um, leaning heavily on technology tools and sort of buy online, pick up in store and store fulfillment of online orders and that kind of thing. Um, but not necessarily radically changing the store experience itself, not not up, up, upgrading the, the sales personnel or physically changing the store experience. And then you've got some others, and maybe Nordstrom falls into this category with Nordstrom Local, which has been around for a little while, and this one, Bloomies, and there, there's probably a couple other examples, and the showrooming examples for sure, I think that that are that are that are very different, either different in their intention or different in terms of the experience. You know, Warby Parker wants you to come in, look at the glasses, and they don't care where you buy them, and and um, you know this. This experience will be dramatically different, and there are some other there are some other examples in the UK that I that I can't think of top of mind. So, just a note about Walmart, which I find interesting. You know, they, they talked about Walmart Plus last week in the news, having seen great success, growing a lot, adding a lot of consumers, but also having a demographic very similar, if not even higher than Amazon's uh, program. And I and they were so focused on customer experience in this aspect of their online order where they'll deliver groceries to your door and they give you all these special perks. What I find fascinating with Walmart, though, in that category of order online, pick up in store, from what I can read about the reviews, and I still monitor the reviews, is they're in store. They never have enough cashiers. <laughs> the lines are too long. The che- self-checkout doesn't work effectively. Right. And, so, and, you know, it's like such a contradiction in terms of customer service and clientele between these two. So they're worlds. neglecting the fundamentals then. It, they, I can't quite figure it out. It's like there's so many line and cashier complaints. I I have no idea. Well, I mean, I think complaints. the I think the just walk out stuff is a kind of a solution to that, and it's very mm-hmm. very interesting. Then that's kind of merits another discussion. But in the interest of time, I want to move on, Re- on to recent issue. I was just gonna say if there, if these are particularly apparent recently, it could be just labor shortage uh, problems. Yeah, that's that's having, that's so. entirely fair yeah. given the hiring could challenges. Be. Well, I may take a deep look at it. It's just fascinating to me that they would have so much going for them and screw up at the last point of customer interestingly, 
this week you had Target saying they're going to hire, I think, 100,000 for the holiday and Macy's mm-hmm. saying something like they're going to hire close to 80,000 for the holiday. I mean, if they're having trouble now, yeah. how are they, they going to get 100,000 people? You know? Right, and CVS saying 25,000. Yeah. Yeah, the numbers are big. Mm-hmm. They're all short. Yeah, I mean, right. maybe they're doing this as part of a PR push to get people interested and show, to show up. But it's going to be really challenging, I think, if they're having trouble now. Yeah. My advice for you, Greg, is to order your Hanukkah gifts early. And for you, David, to order your Christmas gifts early. Yeah. Great, great advice. Sage, that, sage that, wisdom here on the Near Memo. Yes. Yes. And to everyone listening or watching. Deep, okay. deep, ta- deep tactical insight. Yes. So, so um, I, I was at the Locology conference this week, which was very strange because it was like a mix of some safety pr- protocols and then total disregard of them. Um, but among the handful of sessions I attended was a session uh, presented by Wix in which they revealed a bunch of numbers about their customer base. And David, that caught your eye and you, you wanted to chat about that. It did. So uh, I was <laughs> struck, of course, by the, the top line uh, number, not so much the $1.1 billion in revenue, um, which is certainly impressive, but would have expected uh, something close to that from a company of Wix's size. Uh, the number that ca- really caught my eye was the 210 million, what they defined as users. And that sounds really amazing until you divide 1.1 billion by 210 million and come up with a $5 uh, annual revenue per user. Um, and so that's t- that struck me as, okay, they have a lot of freemium users uh, in- included. And the other thing that that that, that struck me about that is 210 million is actually about double the size of most estimates I've heard for SMBs globally. So that would tell you that Wix has not only every SMB on the planet, but that two of them uh, have, have signed up for a, a Wix website uh, or a Wix product. So there's something funny going on with the numbers there. Uh, Greg, you eventually, I think, got them. I'm looking at your follow-up here that, that you, you eventually got them to disclose that uh, six and a half million of them are, are paying. Uh, which translates to an ARPU of about $170, uh, which is great uh, for a SaaS company that's serving uh, the the very small business like they are. So um, it, it just strikes me, it, it just, A, you know, we see a lot of these big numbers reported by tech companies. I know, Mike, you and I have, have uh, taken a, a harder look at some of Yelp's quarterly reports previously and, and sort of uh, identified most of their revenue is due to sales headcount in most cases. And, and um, I just, it, it seems like there's a lot of tech companies out there trying to to put numbers out there and, and hoping no one actually takes a deeper look at what they really mean. Um, so that was the first takeaway. Greg, you were gonna say something? Well, I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that Wix is a public company. And so they really can't lie to the market about their numbers. And I did, I did ask them just, just real quickly to interject uh, I had to chase down two different people to get these answers. Um, you know, do you, are, are these 210 seats? And they said, no, these are 200 separate businesses or separate accounts, 210 million. And they also said half of them were in the U.S. basically. And then the 6.5 million were paying. And I said, well, who, you know, this is, these are way larger numbers than, as you point out, David, you know, the reported number of SMBs. So who are these people? You know, side hustles and hobbyists and, you know, sort of, people who have this idea of starting a business, you know, so there's a, a wide range of folks in there, but it's, it, 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 it sort of plays around with our notion of what the addressable market is, but keep, keep going. 
Well, yeah, and to, I'll pick up on that point. So if, if that's true, if there's 100 million accounts in, in the United States, that means one in three Americans and probably closer to one in two Americans who are old enough to use a web browser um, or not too old to use a web browser, one in two of them have a Wix website. I mean, that doesn't even that doesn't make sense to me. I would be surprised if one in two Americans has heard of Wix. Um, so I, there's just something crazy with these numbers. Um, but I was going to actually spin this into a positive for, for Wix's standpoint. Um, just in the fact that they're clearly able to, regardless of what the actual number is, they are doing a good job of attracting people at a very early stage of their business. And it strikes me that they're coming at this from the angle of, okay, we're going to, we're going to get you online with a website kind of thing first. And then that sort of is a little bit of a different angle to what Shopify and Square are attempting to do on the point of sale side of things. And I know, Greg, you pointed out Wix is partnering with point of sale companies. Uh, they're partnering with a whole range of, of you know, other, other SaaS product providers um, to sort of expand their suite. But it just strikes me that they, you know, they're sort of like, okay, you know, Square, Square probably has the, the sort of top of mindness for someone who wants to start a retail business. And Shopify probably has top of mindness for someone who wants to start a an e-commerce business. But Wix is still getting in at a certain level with a whole range of maybe non-traditional businesses that don't fit neatly into one of those categories. And that might set them up for uh, an opportunity to expand that ARPU with cross-sells and upsells uh, over time. And and so it strikes me that... It, it also puts them earlier in the exactly. of business development. Right. And well, so what's, there's, what's, there's an easier chance to build loyalty. You know, the, the huge switching costs, as we all know, of changing a website provider or changing who hosts your email. Um, so it seems like that's a that's a positive for them, regardless of how big or small that, that total number is. Directionally, well, it's impressive. Well, what's... what's, what's um, I agree. But what what's interesting to me is that we've got, you know, we've got the U.S. Census Bureau or the Bureau of Labor Statistics saying there are 32 million small businesses in the U.S. from zero headcount to 499 people, right? And most of those are solopreneurs or Sohos or whatever you want to call them. And so that's 30 million. And, but we've got 100 million um, at Wix, and then we've got Squarespace, and we've got GoDaddy, and we've got WordPress, and we've got Duda, and we've got, you know, a bunch of hosts, and they've got collectively probably several million. And so there's, there's the, 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 the conventional wisdom that the uh, addressable market for SMBs is somewhere in the 10 to 15 million range, which is kind of the informal discussion it's 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 very strange to sort of reconcile all these things because um clearly some of these people who are on the Wix platform which is the largest single platform are trying to make money or trying to develop businesses or whatever and do constitute small businesses and so i don't i i don't quite see how to get all these you know the the, the conventional wisdom around who is a small business who is the addressable market this this to me sort of raises a a kind of interesting and fundamental question about that. I mean, if you're does, an agency. So, so I would just say though, Greg, so even if you take Wix's paid numbers only, right, which would be something like 3.3 million uh, paying assuming, customers. Assu in, assuming that they're split evenly, right? Right. right. Well, I think I mean, that you, it, it, you said may, in your they, comment. They may have more paid members in the U.S. than in US. Europe. Okay, great. Which would even amplify my point of, okay, that's 10% of the 
typically addressable market. That's a huge chunk for one company to have, particularly on the low end. So, Well, and we continue to see these surveys from Shopify, from CallRail, from, from, you know, from a bunch of different sources that say, still, we talked about this previously, 40 plus to 50% of small businesses say they don't have a website. These are active marketing established small businesses that are spending money on Facebook, on Google. That's also very bizarre. Like that, if you try and extrapolate that number, the implications of that are really weird given all this, <laughs> these other numbers around, right? So that would mean there are 50% more small businesses out there that, that aren't on Wix or aren't on another platform. Right. And th mm -hmm. that just doesn't seem possible somehow. Anyway, Mike, you have nothing to say about that? I don't. <laughs> I mean, you're going to you're going to have to start you're going to have to come on full time in your media and resolve that. Note. Well, I, it's it's just really perplexing. And, you know, I've had a bunch of coffee, so that's probably why I'm as worked up as I am. I don't normally drink coffee anymore, but I did today because of sleep deprivation. So um, and I would add one more number to your mix, which is. InfoUSA right. is somewhere in the 16 million plus locations, which, which is a different metric. And Google is somewhere just under 17 million maybe, in the maybe. United States. But again, it's location based, not, uh, and probably 500,000 uh, of those are at fake SAB listings, so the 17 million. So, so 17 at least million. In Google's so was, case. At you least said SAB? What's that? Yeah, I don't know. I was making a, a spam. 500,000 garage, garage door listings. Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> or or uh, insurance lead right. gen spam. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. Maybe we'll do some report someday about these numbers and make sense of them all <laughs> for everyone, if that can happen. Um, um, all right. So then uh, for my sort of concluding segment here, there, there are a couple of things that sort of tie together. One of the, one of the things that I, I think I included in the newsletter on Wednesday was a letter from nine Democratic senators to the FTC asking them to, to undertake rulemaking that would enhance consumer privacy across a range of different um, issues, one of which was use of personal data in presumably in ad targeting and attribution. And they were asking for that to be all opt-in, as far as I could tell. It was it was a request to make for the FTC to make ad targeting and attribution use of personal data entirely opt in, a la Apple's app, app tracking transparency, which I I just think, you know, and the implication of that is that failure to ask for consent for use of personal data in digital marketing is deceptive because that would be the the authority under which the FTC could regulate that unfair practices or deception which is kind of a radical statement to make. Now, if it goes through, if it all happens, we're going to see a legal challenge. This is outside of the scope of the FTC's authority, yada, yada, yada. But it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic. Um, so what do you guys think of the, of the implications of that? Let's not handicap the, the, uh, the, the rule itself. Let's just talk about it as though it could, could go through. Well, my first thought is if it's not implemented at a system level, it becomes very unmanageable for the user. Right. If it's a, it's like Apple is implemented in a system at a high level, the user only has to answer once and you're done and it, you move on. It's very simple. But if it's like with websites now, as you pointed out in the pre-talk, it's a major pain in the butt. You got this click and that click. You don't know what you're clicking. They obfuscate what you're actually agreeing to. And it's really problematic. It ends up being like HIPAA where you end up signing 27 extra forms 
to just go see the doctor, right? And, there, and there's no kind of and there's no outcome. and the and the desired benefit doesn't happen because you ab- right. you, exactly. you abandon. I yeah. think, gee, I mean, I, Apple, I think probably is being effective. It's a little too early to tell, right? But I think GDPR has been a massive failure. It's just, I mean, yep. I don't really feel like my data or CCPA, same thing. I don't feel like my data is any more or less protected than it was three, four years ago. I just have to click through a bunch of crap to view anything I was actually well, and you don't, and you don't, view, and you don't so. have any confidence whatsoever that if you go through the effort to do the jump through the hoops, that that's going to be it's going to result in anything. It's complete black box. And, you know, interestingly, as an aside, Apple, there was an article in the Washington Post that said, um, you know, there were, they were, they were looking at 10 apps. I don't recall the particular apps. One of them was a gaming app. I didn't look at all the names that were still passing on data. They were, they were receiving the no tracking prompt and yet they were disregarding that um, Mm. and, and still passing on data. Now, Apple has a pretty powerful enforcement mechanism they can just bar people from the app store, which is a pretty, pretty powerful thing. Um, but just re- real quickly, uh, Facebook now is complaining, and there's been some reporting about how the, the uh, opt-in consent is starting to impact Facebook and in turn its small business customers You know, to the tune of we can't really track things as well anymore, we're having trouble. It's really on the attribution side more than on the targeting side that they're having problems. And so, you know, we'll wait and see at the next uh, earnings call whether it has any kind of impact on actual actual revenue. But that's sort of the the early canary in a coal mine version of what might happen whole, uh, across the web. Uh, Some of the stories happens. where the, Greg were suggesting that the that the cost of ads on Facebook because of the lack of targeting going up. was too high, and so people were just bailing on the platform as a result. Advertisers but, were bailing on. The yeah, platform. the cost is going up, which is it's been true for the last couple of years, um, and and that may be a comp, you know the cost is going up in part because it's getting tougher, I think, but that may be a a, a, a variable, as you say. Um, but Mike, you you had a point about um, before we conclude about Apple Maps as kind of an early indicator of what might be the future from a data standpoint. So. When Apple came out with reviews, a number of people asked me on LinkedIn or Twitter whether I thought they should engage with Apple reviews. And it forced me to take a look at analytics and for a number of clients, a couple of clients. And I looked at a range and what I saw was uh, traffic that had come from Google was clearly identifiable as Apple. But I was seeing in, in the lowest case, 5% of their traffic was coming from dark Apple traffic. And in the, in the, in the more pr- pronounced case, 25% of their traffic, this was a high-end spa, restaurant, hotel place, 25% of their traffic was coming from Apple and doing things like booking and so on without a lot of conversions. So clearly in some areas already, Apple is having an impact. And as a marketer, it's dark. You can't really see it. All you can do is say, God, it looks like you're doing well there, but we don't really know whether it's Apple Maps that's driving it or Safari. Well, you know, whatever. It's unlikely duck, duck, go. So as you pointed out, it probably is Google Maps. And then the question is, if that much traffic is coming to the website, how much is just stopping on Apple Maps and making a decision there? How much of it's discovery versus recovery? There's all these things that we have no idea of. But what what it made me remember was in 2013, I was consulting with SeaWorld. They called me desperate one day because cars were piling up at the back gate. Obviously, driving directions were wrong. I looked into it wasn't Google Maps. It wasn't here Maps. It was Apple Maps. This is 2013. When Apple Maps was wrong, 
it was a huge problem. So there's a high amount of usage. And now with Apple Maps becoming more discovery driven, as you pointed out in your newsletter this week, I think marketers have to get used to the idea that there's going to be less information and we're going to be working more in the dark. Well, that's that's a, a huge topic that we'll be talking more about. But there's there's a lot of interesting issues here to sort of parse and for future conversation. But unfortunately, I think we're out of time. And um, as always, thank you very much for listening and reading. And we'd love to hear more feedback from you. And any last words from you guys this week? None for me, but have a great weekend or week, whichever it is when you listen and stay Hope safe. Hope everybody makes it back from Locality safely. Yep. Yep. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.